0: If we're going to get where we need to go in terms of dealing with the massive challenges presented by climate change, we are going to need to find these cost-effective indigenous sources of renewable energy. And here on the East Coast and over on the West Coast and to some extent down the Gulf, we have this renewable resource. Is wind that we can
1: tap. Hello and welcome to Energy 360, the podcast from the Energy Security and Climate Change Program at CSIS. I'm your host, Lisa Hyland. This week, we look at the U.S. offshore wind sector. The U.S. Department of Interior will hold its first offshore wind energy lease sale off the Carolinas this Wednesday, May 11th. This follows a very successful offshore wind auction in New York held this past February. We wanted to talk to some of the key state-level officials about what their states are doing to promote and to integrate offshore wind development into their energy portfolios and how these resources might help meet state climate goals. My colleague, Morgan Higman, talks with officials from North Carolina, Massachusetts, and New York. Starting with North Carolina, Jennifer Munt is the Assistant Secretary for Clean Energy Economic Development with the North Carolina Department of Commerce, where she leads the state's efforts to secure economic development and workforce priorities in the clean energy sector. Next, Bruce Carlisle is the Managing Director for Offshore Wind at the Massachusetts Clean Energy Center, where he leads efforts to advance the successful and responsible development of offshore wind in Massachusetts. And finally, George Sassine is the Vice President for Large-Scale Renewables at the New York State Energy Research and Development Authority, or NYSERDA, where he works to advance both land-based renewable energy and offshore wind resources in New York. Here's Morgan to lead the discussion with these three key officials.
2: Thank you so much for joining us. North Carolina is shaping up to be a dark horse among states in the race to promote emissions reduction and clean energy. Could you walk us through your state's goals related to climate and energy and your role in helping
3: achieve them? Sure. Thanks, Morgan. It's great to be here. So first of all, we have goals for carbon emissions reductions that were just enacted last October through bipartisan energy legislation called Energy Solutions for North Carolina, House Bill 951. And for the first time in North Carolina, we now have carbon emissions reductions targets. By 2030 in the power sector, we are on track to reduce carbon emissions by 70%. And then by 2050, we're going to strive to achieve carbon neutrality. And so uh, Governor Cooper has tasked uh, Duke Energy to work with the Utilities Commission in adopting a carbon reduction plan that will help us achieve those goals.
2: That's really exciting to hear, especially in advancing bipartisan support for clean energy and climate action. On May 11th, your state has a leasing auction for an area called Wilmington East. This area is about 17 miles off the coast, so it's in federal waters. But the auction itself, though it's overseen by the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management, uh, I imagine your state has also played a significant role in kind of identifying those sites and getting them ready for the lease. What goes into that sort of effort?
3: So I could talk about the effort that went into the identification of the Wilmington East Wind Energy Area for probably hours, but I recognize that we don't have that time at our disposal here. So I'll try to synthesize it as much as possible. I would note that the work that the state did with BOEM to identify that wind energy area specifically began in the early 2010s and through the work that's conducted by what's known as the BOEM Renewable Energy Task Forces, which are stood up by the federal agency and are made up of representatives from state agencies covering all manner of natural resource uh, responsibilities, local government officials, tribal representatives, and federal agencies. And so over the course of several years, BOEM went through its process of deconfliction, whereby it winnowed down what had been originally much larger areas for consideration. And based on potential conflicts with military, shipping, Coast Guard safety, natural and marine resources, fisheries, tourism, viewshed, and all manner of other considerations, Bowen went from a large area to the area that will be up for auction on May 11th, as you described.
2: So for this lease, we have, I think, 16 qualified bidders participating in the auction. How important is it to have things like incentives and power purchase agreements and other kinds of financial mechanisms to make these
3: lease really
2: attractive and this auction really competitive?
3: I think what's really important here is the interest that's generated and that's evidenced by these 16 qualified bidders who have put themselves forward with their interest in this auction. We don't have procurement policies in place like our neighbors to the north do, namely in the northeast. However, I think that our policy environment very much supports a competitive leasing strategy and an approach by the bidders and ultimately the lease winners in developing and investing in North Carolina. For instance, the bill that I just described, our new legislation directing us towards carbon neutrality by mid-century. And then in addition, we have Executive Order 218 that Governor Cooper signed last year that sets for the first time for North Carolina development goals for offshore wind off of our coast. He has directed us to work towards 2.8 gigawatts of offshore wind development by 2030 and 8 gigawatts by 2040. And so recognizing and sending that signal to industry, we believe that we are setting the stage for their interests, which we have seen with their decisions to qualify for this auction and working with them to identify what our values are for investing and developing this industry and this sector.
2: Yes, I'd like to get into that more in a moment. There's an urgent timeline for awarding this lease for Wilmington East because former President Donald Trump issued a 10-year moratorium on offshore developments from North Carolina all the way down to Florida, and that moratorium takes effect in July, July 1. Could you talk a little bit about how that has maybe expedited the timeline or affected your ideas about future development
3: for offshore wind? Absolutely. And I appreciate you bringing that up, Morgan, because it gives me an opportunity to thank BOEM once again in a very public forum. And I appreciate this opportunity for really working in lockstep with us to advance this lease process in the way that the agency has. When we were made aware of the moratorium and the extent to which it applied, including renewable energy development, we began discussions with Bowam to try to determine what amount of time it would take for us to go from where we were with just an identified wind energy area to take it through the process to get to the lease auction in advance of the moratorium kicking out on July 1st. So I would say. Absolutely. We've had a positive and collaborative relationship with our partners at BOEM. We would not be where we are going into this lease auction on May 11th if it weren't for their tenacity and work towards getting us to the point where we can go to this auction with full and clear information about the wind energy area.
2: I do want to ask too, it's called Wilmington East. What happened to Wilmington West? Is there hope for future site development there? Or was that deemed not sort of appropriate for development at this time?
3: Morgan, I would say that the latter so the area is still there. It's still been identified as Velum as a possibility for potential development in the future, but it's my understanding that at this time, due to several potential conflicts with that area, namely the entirety of that identified polygon is located within critical habitat for the North Atlantic right whale.
2: Here again, uh, so we've talked a little bit about what's gone into getting Wilmington East ready for sale, but I. Hope you could talk us through what happens next, or in the case of Kitty Hawk, what happens after that sale has been secured?
3: Sure. Between the lease auction and the awarding of the winning lessee, the winning lessee, and in this case, Grid or Kitty Hawk, they are required to prepare what's known as a site assessment plan, which is a much more in-depth evaluation of the area itself that helps inform their preparation of the construction operations plan to which you just. Referred. That site assessment plan typically takes six to 12 months to prepare, and it involves deploying meteorological buoys and conducting some other geophysical and geotechnical surveys of the area to determine the viability and feasibility of construction and where foundations and turbines and towers can be located. And so that all helps inform the preparation of the COP, the construction operations plan. And submitted the COP for Kitty Hawk North, which is about 40 percent of the wind energy area in total to Bellum last year. And it's my understanding it was received and Boehm considered it, deemed it complete so that they can work on now the preparation of the draft environmental impact statement. The draft EIS is a requirement under the National Environmental Policy Act, which requires federal agencies to conduct a thorough and comprehensive environmental review of any actions that it undertakes. And in this case, BOEM is the lead agency and they are preparing the DEIS for this project, and they will collaborate and work with all federal agencies with a responsibility or a stake in the activities that take place out on the outer continental shelf, as well as along the corridor or right of way between the boundary of the wind energy area and the right of way that carries the cabling for bringing the energy on shore. And so that includes agencies like the Environmental Protection Agency, the Army Corps of Engineers, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, the National Marine Fisheries Service, and the analogs in the adjacent states. And so our departments of environmental quality, natural and cultural resources, our Department of Administration through their state property office, everybody will be involved, as well as the analogous entities in the state of Virginia. And so everybody provides input and review of the draft EIS, which I understand will be prepared and ready for review and public comment sometime this fall. And after receipt of public comment, BOEM will issue its final EIS and hopefully a decision on whether or not to approve the project based on its findings in the EIS.
2: With a terrific overview and a lot of stakeholders involved in that process, it sounds Absolutely. Like. You noted Virginia, and I wanted to ask, my understanding is that Virginia is involved because the energy developed from Kitty Hawk will be going to Virginia and not North Carolina. Is that right? Maybe. Maybe. <laughs>
3: We're not entirely sure just yet. It's my understanding that for the Kitty Hawk North, like I said, that first initial 40% portion of the wind energy area in the COP that was submitted by the company, the proposed right of way for the cabling and the onshoring would go to Virginia. However, it's my understanding that there's not a power purchase agreement in place just yet. And that first tranche is still before their state's Utilities Commission, the Virginia State Corporation. And so I think it's still to be determined where exactly those electrons will be directed. And so
2: these are the kind of issues that aren't really ironed out until after the sale of the lease. Is that correct? Absolutely. You mentioned that there was a construction and operation plan submitted for the first 40% of Kitty Hawk. What about the remaining 60%?
3: Morgan, I'm really glad you asked. So my understanding is that Avangrid is in the final stages of completing the construction and operations plan for that remaining 60 percent of the Kitty Hawk wind energy area. And on preliminary conversations, it's my understanding that there is a potential that Grid will look to locate the onshoring of that remainder of the project in North Carolina. The exact location is still TBD. The COP has not yet been released publicly. But from my understanding is that there are several locations in North Carolina that are under consideration. I would also just note that, you know, just because the electrons might go to Virginia, just Based on the general proximity of Virginia and North Carolina and the workforce that traverses across state lines, the opportunity to serve North Carolina extends beyond just the electricity and the power generation. We're able to provide jobs and investment opportunities and training and infrastructure improvements. That's terrific to hear.
2: I want to talk a little bit about those economic opportunities and offshore wind that you were alluding to. In 2021, Governor Cooper announced the formation of NC Towers, the North Carolina Task for Offshore Wind Economic Resource Strategies. Could you talk to me a little bit about what this group is doing to support economic opportunity and workforce
3: opportunity? Absolutely, Morgan. So NC Towers, as we like to call it, the North Carolina Task Force for Offshore Wind Economic Resource Strategies, was stood up by Governor Cooper and his executive order. Last June, we held our first meeting of this 30 plus member task force in February, where we provided the members with some level setting and understanding about where North Carolina is with offshore wind sector as it pertains to business development, supply chain. So the supply chain and infrastructure assets workforce assessment report that was conducted by consultants on behalf of the Department of Commerce came out in March 2021 and helped put us on a glide path for how we implement the recommendations that were contained therein. And so what we have done as a task force and as the staff that are supporting its work is we have divided up the membership into four separate subcommittees where we see the bulk of the work being done. There's a subcommittee that is working specifically on supply chain and business development opportunities in the state. There's another subcommittee that is working on workforce development and training needs, identifying what the skill sets are for this new burgeoning sector in North Carolina and identifying where that training can be done and provided to individuals who are looking to transition or pivot into offshore wind. We also have a subcommittee that is focused on infrastructure, environmental justice and inclusion. And then we have a fourth subcommittee that is focused on messaging and outreach such that we can provide data-driven research and other information to communities and interested stakeholders. We'll be submitting our first annual report sometime next month that articulates the work that we've done to date and then forecasts some of the work that we'll be doing going forward over the next calendar year, over the next year, and we'll do the same going forward on an annual basis. I was also curious about your work
2: with maybe neighboring states on advancing offshore wind resources.
3: We recognize that this industry is enormous. It's huge, and the opportunity is vast. Back in 2020, the governors of Maryland and Virginia and Governor Roy Cooper signed on to the Smart Power Memorandum of Understanding, committing our three-state region to working together in a collaborative fashion to amplify and promote offshore wind energy resources, supply chain development, workforce training and supports, infrastructure investments, and Working with our voice together as we approach federal issues. The resulting partnership has been extremely successful thus far. For the first year of the Smart Power Partnership, North Carolina chaired the partnership, which is made up of a team of leaders from across our respective agencies and the executive branch in all three states, as well as staff within those agencies to provide technical expertise and, and subject matter knowledge to the work that we do. And we've been working with them to develop a work plan for this year of items that are tangible to develop tasks that we can achieve with a large degree of success over this year. Well, this has been a terrific overview
2: of North Carolina's progress in advancing offshore wind. And I just wondered if you could give us a couple of reflections on what you think the future of this resource will be for your state
3: and your region. Thank you, Morgan. I appreciate that. Here in North Carolina, we see offshore wind. Energy development in the sector is a win win. You know, there's an estimated 85,000 good paying jobs that are anticipated to support this sector and over $100 billion worth of capital investments that are going to come with it in the next 10 to 12 years. We think that North Carolina is uniquely positioned to attract a significant share of that investment. And not just at the coast, but throughout the state. You know, we're entering this market at just the right time. We get to benefit from the best practices and the lessons learned from our neighbors in the Northeast and apply those so that we can develop offshore wind efficiently and feasibly and affordable for our ratepayers. Uh, well, thank you so
2: much for joining us, Jennifer. We really appreciate learning about North Carolina. And now we're gonna turn to some of those Northeast neighbors you talked about to learn from their lessons and best practices. Thank you so much for joining us, Bruce. Governor Baker has described offshore wind as the centerpiece of Massachusetts's climate goals and efforts to achieve net zero emissions in 2050. Massachusetts was the first state to establish an offshore wind goal, and your state has been working with BOEM to promote offshore wind since about 2009. Could you tell us about the evolution of Massachusetts's offshore wind industry and its current goals and
0: projects? Sure. Yeah. And thank you very much for the opportunity. Yeah, it's been uh, over a decade since Massachusetts you know, started in earnest with the U.S. Bureau of Ocean Energy Management on a federal state or partnership for offshore wind uh, leasing on the Outer Continental Shelf. We could rewind a little bit further before that and, and talk about our experience with uh, Cape Wind, which was a a failed offshore wind project in, in Nantucket Sound, but we learned a lot of lessons uh, from Cape Wind, and I think obviously uh, our interest in exploring cost-effective, renewable, sustainable, clean energy was um, really front of Massachusetts, you know, mind as we were engaging with Cape Wind, and you know that project itself uh, had some limitations in terms of the whole siting process and how it sort of came to be, and it also had fairly serious limitations in terms of its, uh, its pricing structure and, and financing and, and ultimately that's sort of led to its demise. Yeah, and from the ashes of Cape Wind was born sort of a new federal leasing process, and and that's um, you know dates back to the Energy Policy Act of really 2005 to develop the renewable energy leasing process that we use currently. It's a more robust and healthy and uh, very engaged process uh, where BOEM uses these intergovernmental task forces to really explore all sorts of issues associated with the planning, the siting, the leasing, and all ultimately the construction and operation of offshore wind. So in Massachusetts, we have very ambitious climate goals. We are um, net zero by 2050 and have a uh, decarbonization roadmap, which explores the sort of pathways and scenarios for us to get there. And the, all the the different pathways. It was clear that offshore wind represents the most cost-effective pathway to sort of bulk generation of clean renewable energy. And we are looking at something on the order of 15 to 20 gigawatts of offshore wind for Massachusetts and, and more for, for the region. And I think, you know, that's the long-term view. But I also think we rewind a little bit back to 2016 when the legislature passed and the governor signed the first state legislation focused on the commercial leasing, which ultimately led in 2017 to the awarding of the Vineyard Wind One project, will be the nation's first commercial scale offshore wind project in the United States states. And the way it works in Massachusetts is, so we have that codified into law. So essentially the the state has said to the utilities or or the electric distribution companies that you shall seek these different chunks of clean, renewable offshore wind generation for long-term power purchase agreement contracts. And the state Department of Energy Resources with an independent evaluator, uh, work with the utilities on the process, but we've now been through this three times. Vineyard Wind won 800 megawatts, Mayflower won the the second procurement for 800 megawatts, and our third procurement was recently announced for 1,600 megawatts, 1,200 to Avon Grid for Commonwealth Wind, and another 400 to Mayflower, uh, bringing their project to, to 1,200.
2: That is a terrific overview. Massachusetts has done a lot of exciting things, and and one of them is this uh, sort of holistic thinking about developing the industry that you describe. and And in particular there have been some great assessments that I've seen on sort of infrastructure development, workforce development and technological innovation. And I hoped we could go through those topics sort of individually beginning with infrastructure. Could you tell us about the offshore wind ports and infrastructure assessments your organization has conducted and some of the takeaways from that work?
0: Yeah, I think this is a sort of, you know, the areas that you just, you know, sort of covered all kind of roll up into a, a general theme here, which is mass CEC works directly with the industry and other stakeholders to advance the responsible development of offshore wind. We want to reduce risk, we want to increase market confidence, and we want to, in addition to obviously all the clean energy benefits, CEC, we're a quasi-state agency, we are really focused in on the uh, economic and workforce opportunities presented by clean energy. Which are very, very significant. But we really want to, as we are supporting industry, as we are making investments, really take an informed approach. So you'll often see us sort of doing this assessment, study, decision making, investment, iterate, and then you know, go back and, and do it again if we need to, or or add where we need to. And so the ports and infrastructure assessment is really representative of that. You know, United States is a global leader in onshore wind. We've got all this great manufacturing and supply chain and workforce. It's really difficult to export that to offshore wind. The scale of the turbines are such that the components and balance of plant that go into an offshore wind farm are just too large scale and size and dimensions to do anything but but move by sea. And with maritime industries, you need ports. And part of our entry into this came from work we've done in designing uh, engineering building and operating the nation's first offshore wind purpose-built facility. That's the new Bedford Marine Commerce Terminal. That work led us to explore a bunch of different locations in the Commonwealth, which had different attributes that were very well suited to offshore wind. And in many, many ways, offshore wind represents this fantastic opportunity to take these legacy sites. But in order to support the industry, we felt as though we could do some of the first fact finding, information gathering, due diligence, and then some of the sort of reuse possibilities for these locations. And so we've got this great resource, which which we've now seen many other sort of states uh, sort of replicate that type of study and information gathering in order to support the industry. And I think it's a really good resource for many.
2: And how are you working with the project developers to make sure that some of these sites that you've identified are getting the kinds of investment or repurposing that you have identified in this report?
0: Yeah, I think there's different models and approaches to sort of leveraging the private sector economic development sort of apparatus that the you know global offshore wind industry brings to the U.S. Uh, you know as it largely moves from its 20-year basis in Europe and starts to take hold in the U.S. and Asia and, and other markets. You know, there's there's a lot we can learn there. States have used approaches where they've really heavily leveraged. Uh, what we call sort of local content commitments in their energy procurements. In Massachusetts, we've taken a a bit of a different approach. We still leverage lots of direct economic and workforce and other benefits, multi-million dollars of investments from developers in their bids for these long-term contracts. But we're also very focused in on on cost controls and cost containment and very cognizant of the fact that these are long-term contracts and they do need to be approved by our Department of Public Utilities, which needs to balance sort of a fair return with consumer interests. overseen by our attorney general's office. So there are a lot of um, sort of oversight reasons why, you know, we're trying to do this balancing act between not put this all on the shoulders of ratepayers, but still find ways to uh, promote economic development. One recent major milestone was the legislation passed back in December, which created a offshore uh, innovation industry trust at CEC, and it was funded with $90 million of, of state funds. And what we're doing is we're utilizing those resources to leverage private sector investment in offshore wind ports. So you'll be seeing, you know, probably next week, a a big request for proposals, putting on the table at least $50 million to be competed leveraging you know, that plus, you know, uh, times and a half of private sector investment with demonstrated locations that, you know, will be sort of competing for roles in the industry. And, you know, we know of half dozen or more really sort of high priority, high value opportunities. As we think about sort of
2: building out these ports and, and, ultimately, wind farms. Workforce development is also going to be really important. Mass CEC has done some assessments in this area and provided grant funding to support workforce development. Could you talk about some of the priorities in this area?
0: Yeah, happy to. This is critically important. So all of this work, I guess, you know, ports and workforce and supply chain, we kind of roll up and talk about a sector development. You know, we've got other areas in which we operate, but uh, these are all critically important. Uh, in order to be able to plan for, develop, install, construct, operate, and maintain, you need the ports, you need the personnel, and you need the the supply chain, you know, the companies that all sort of roll up and, and produce and and supply. And services. Yeah, and, and similar to ports, you know, we, we take this approach where we you know, look at the topic. We produce really, I, I think, a, a seminal workforce, Massachusetts Offshore Workforce Assessment report back in 2018 and recently updated it with a sort of a fresh look. But what we wanted to do as we were running through the first procurement and looking at, we are securing the, the first commercial project in the U.S. and we are going to need the different personnel and occupations to to support that. We really needed to be informed about what those were and what that meant is sort of breaking down the, you know, kind of life cycle, if you will, uh, the different sort of phases of a wind farm and breaking down the occupations, looking at where, you know, Massachusetts is well positioned and where there might be gaps, identifying some of the training and or education or certifications that will be uh, required from different personnel and different scopes
2: The final piece, at least when I think about building this industry is the technological innovations that Mass EC is supporting. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about the work there.
0: This is um, an area that's you know been a, a focus for Mass CEC really since our inception, not so much offshore wind and innovation, but really the clean energy technology development and opportunities. We do a lot of work with early stage and, and mid stage companies in the clean energy space, sort of supporting through many different sort of programs and pathways, just what you're talking about, innovation like i said we're importing this approach and technology or industry if you will largely from europe where they over the last two decades they've gone through the you know the bumps and and the the learnings and have done so well in reducing the cost of offshore wind and so we're entering in on that sort of price curve at a place where no one really expected the us to you know if you i went back to cape wind if you look at those you know sort of contract prices versus you know the Mayflower and, and what was just announced, you know, they're night and day. They're, they're, they're very, very different. And that's really the product of the maturation of the industry in Europe. So we are going to be onboarding uh, this very mature industry. But as you know, we do very well in the US and we in Massachusetts, we are going to find new ways and new approaches to make the offshore wind industry in the US even more efficient and even more innovative and even more safe for the nation. At the Wind uh, Technology Testing Center uh, in Boston, we had the great opportunity to compete and and partner with the Department of Energy on the nation's uh, largest uh, indoor blade testing facility. And we run a full suite of tests and certifications for the industry at the center. It's it's quite a sight. It's like a massive uh, airplane hangar with four uh, test stands on this specially engine engineered concrete rebar reinforced structure that goes down into the bedrock uh, in order to support laterally these blades and they're run through uh, different sort of fatigue and life cycle where they're sort of speeding up uh, different torsional and other stresses uh, on the blades we we also partner with the blade manufacturers on on research and prototyping what we're doing now is um, sort of looking at sort of you know, phase 2.0 for the facility. facility needs to be expanded to be able to accommodate the uh, really the tremendous advances in terms of uh, blade length and, and dynamics. The other thing I'll mention on, um, you know, sort of the innovation and, and technology development front is that, you know, there's a, a, a rich sort of network and platform and partnerships for us to support the growth of uh, new approaches to doing things. Greentown Labs in Somerville, Mass is a really uh, nation-leading clean energy incubator accelerator. And just one example, we had this great partnership with Vineyard Wind, Greentown, and Mass CEC. It's called the Offshore Wind Challenge. And it really took a very specific issue that developers face and put it out to innovators uh, to help come up with ways to address it. And the issue is the presence of highly endangered marine mammals in this case, in particular the North Atlantic right whale, but other marine mammals that are in the vicinity. Obviously, it's critically important, you know, not just to the industry, but to partners and generally to coexist and coexist safely and and be very respectful of the ecosystem. So finding new ways where they can detect in either real-time or near real-time, as we call it, can go a long way to ensuring, obviously, safe operations and the protection of these uh, critically endangered species. Really, really innovative ways, everything from night view and other sort of uh, visions to AUV remote detection of, of marine mammals, just sort of one example that you will see replicated uh, in so many ways in the in the coming years uh, in the Commonwealth. The
2: last thing I wanted to ask you about is as Massachusetts continues to lead in offshore wind sort of development and innovation, how are you working with other states to sort of advance your own goals and also share your successes and kind of lessons learned?
0: Yeah, we have the opportunity to uh, work with other states in a lot of different ways. We do this sort of naturally through just, you know, years of, of sort of shared goals and, and principles and building of partnerships. But there's also sort of specific examples where there's some forums and opportunities where there's more structure for, for that engagement. So one example, you know, might be the Gulf of Maine, where uh, again, with our colleagues at the U.S., Bureau of Ocean Energy Management. We're sort of commencing the the planning process for commercial leasing. Another is, you know, maybe looking south is some collaborations we've done with Rhode Island and Connecticut around supply chain development. Both Rhode Island and Connecticut also have projects and have uh, partnered on some regional, what we call supply chain forums. That's where we're inviting local companies that have an interest or know they have a potential capability in offshore wind and introducing them to some of the industry folks, developers, some of the tier one companies to better uh, articulate the different roles in the supply chain, the taxonomy of a wind farm, how these entities are doing their contracting and tendering. That type of uh, sort of information sharing has been really, really valuable and something that we can do the uh, the regional approach.
2: Is there anything else that you would like to add when you think about the future of offshore wind in the Commonwealth and also across the country more broadly?
0: I think we would greatly benefit by growing the awareness of sort of what offshore wind represents for the United States uh, sort of more broadly into into our population and to our, you know, our citizens and community members. If we're going to get where we need to go in terms of dealing with the massive challenges presented by climate change. We are going to need to find these cost-effective indigenous sources of renewable energy. And here on the East Coast and over on the West Coast and to some extent down the Gulf, we have this renewable resource, this wind that we can tap. And in doing so, this industry right now presents the United States, especially where we are, coming through and, and hopefully out of this pandemic, which has just been devastating. Some people say and it sounds a little cliche, but I honestly feel that this is a one of these generational opportunities. You've heard that sort of term before. But this truly is. This is the onboarding of this fantastic emerging of a solution for us to electrify our transportation and heating and cooling and other sectors and decarbonize those while developing a renewable resource and Uh, creating new jobs and new business opportunities that we really want to be accessible to so many different, you know, citizens. So I really want that vision to sort of trickle down and, uh, you know, you bump into someone on the street and um, when you ask them about offshore wind, they say, yeah, I know about offshore wind. It's really important.
2: Thank you for joining us, Bruce. And now we're going to turn to New York, which is set to offer its third offshore wind solicitation in the coming weeks. George, thank you for joining us. New York has some ambitious climate and energy goals and has been described as the center of gravity for offshore wind. Could you give us an overarching picture of your state's clean energy goals and a little history about how offshore wind is playing into them?
4: Absolutely. Thanks for for having us today. I'm I'm really honored to to be here and be representing the state of New York. The New York Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act, or simplified, let's call the New York Climate Act calls for 70% of its electricity to come from renewables by 2030. And then eventually by 2040, the law mandates us to get to 100% zero emission electricity. And when you look at our plan to reaching these really aggressive goals, we want to get to 10 gigawatts of solar, six gigawatts of energy storage by 2030. And offshore wind specifically plays a, a very big role in achieving these goals. And as of now, The law stipulates us to to get to nine gigawatts of offshore wind by 2035. So a really ambitious goal for New York and offshore wind is really going to be really critical in in reaching these goals. And part of the reason is that the majority of uh, the demand for electricity in the state of New York is coming from New York City. And one of the easiest ways to get renewable energy to feed New York City Now, I also want to level set and talk about a little bit of uh, where are we with developing the offshore wind market in the U.S. As of now, we have about nine projects that are being developed at around 4.3 gigawatts. And this is about half of our goals to get to 2035. And there's much more to come with the upcoming offshore wind solicitation that New York is planning
2: Very good. I want to get to those solicitations here in a moment, but first I want to talk about the recent lease sale in New York. On February 25th of this year, Boehm completed the New York BITE lease sale, which was the country's biggest offshore wind auction to date, gathering a total of almost $4.5 billion. So we'll go to the U.S. Treasury. The lease agreements for the New York BITE included some novel stipulations. Could you tell us about those and how they came to be?
4: Absolutely. So I think at the core of what BOEM is doing here is advancing stakeholder engagement as being a core part of building this industry and doing it early and on a regular basis. So these stipulations really um, highly incentivize and encourage private sector developers to do early and regular engagement with tribes and ocean users and fisheries communities and underserved communities and other stakeholders and would require them to to provide a semi-annual progress report that also includes how are they engaging with these stakeholders when it comes to the development of transmission with the development of a supply chain. So this is very much in line with how New York has been approaching this. Stakeholder engagement is at the center of everything we do.
2: So after offshore lease sale, like the New York bite. What happens in New York? I understand you have a solicitation process that's really important in advancing project development and economic development. Could you tell
1: us about that process?
4: Absolutely. So earlier in the year, you know, developers bid into the Bohm uh, lease auction and a select a few de- developers won the lease areas you know, in the New York Bight. What comes next is the state of New York through NYSERDA launches an RFP, a solicitation, over the next few weeks and few months where we solicit bids from these developers. And so what we would get from them are bids to develop offshore wind projects in the New York Bight that would serve the New York market, as well as investment plans to build the supply chain for offshore wind in New York. So we're marrying together both the generation of offshore wind with supply chain investments.
2: It sounds like there's growing alignment between the federal and state governments to prioritize inclusive economic values in this industry. Can you tell us a little bit more about New York's efforts specifically?
4: Yeah, absolutely. Listen, our tagline is what we're doing is just, is more than just green electrons. It's not only about addressing and fighting climate change, but it's also about economic development and and bringing opportunities for job creation and lifting disadvantaged communities. So it's a, a dual story of both fighting the climate and Growing the economy, and with that in mind, when we're running our solicitations around offshore wind in New York, we're pairing these solicitations with the development of the offshore wind supply chain. And you know, I wouldn't hide our ambition. We want New York to be the offshore wind supply chain hub for the whole United States. And Governor Hochul is, you know, really addressing this head-on. You know, in the past. A couple of solicitations on offshore wind, what we did in New York is we committed $200 million in investments in developing the, the, the supply chain. And in our upcoming solicitation in the next few weeks and, and few months, Governor Hochul announced $500 million that are going to be invested in the development of the supply chain here in New York. Uh, and that means developing our port infrastructure, attracting manufacturers to come in and build offshore wind blades and cells and cables you know, here in New York, and uh, looking at our existing, you know, manufacturing footprint and businesses and small and medium businesses in New York and how they can expand their operations and service the offshore wind industry. So this is a, a very big focus for us here and creating jobs and making sure that disadvantaged communities are part of the, the story, are trained, are, you know, their skills are, are leveled up to take advantage and help us build this industry from scratch. Is a top priority for us.
2: You've talked about wanting to be an industry leader and a hub for US supply chains for offshore wind. What are some of the competitive advantages that New York has and is sort of leveraging to support this leadership?
4: A few things is we have um, not only the highest target for offshore wind, but it's codified into law. Like we have to do it. It's not just a target or a policy ambition we it's a law and we have to do it and i think this is one of the unique components of what we have here in new york all hands are on deck to achieving these goals and we have to achieve these goals so i think that that is number one number two is stakeholder engagement like i mentioned also earlier has been really a big differentiator for new york we've been leading the industry here because we've been at it very early on and doing it right you know engaging with all the the right stakeholders ahead of time and bringing them on the journey with us and incorporating their feedback and their insights and into our plans. So from a planning perspective, we've been really leading the way there. And if you think about it, we did our master plan 1.0 for offshore Wind here in New York about seven years ago. And this information was, uh, was shared with Boehm, which eventually led to the current auction that we're seeing with the New York Bite. So that collaboration early on with the federal government, which has taken many, many years and uh, and a very robust planning process is really at the core of our success. The other, I think, value proposition is that we're putting real money behind you know our, our ambition. So supply chain is a, is a big component of this, and we already committed $200 million previously, and now another $500 million to support and invest in building the supply chain. So uh, we're doing everything we can to do this. And we're doing this in partnership with the private sector and other stakeholders. So I'll give you an example. Right now, as we're about to launch our upcoming New York 3 Offshore Wind station, you know, we have an RFI on the street that seeks uh, feedback consistently from all participants in the market on how we're thinking of evolving our city station and incorporating their feedback as we structure these. So we couldn't do it without the private sector and they're, they're key partners with us. We want them to be successful. We want to build, a at the end of the day, a, an offshore wind industry that's affordable for citizens, that's inclusive of c- citizens, and is also sets the private sector developers to succeed and make sustainable returns on their investments as well.
2: Very good. Transmission is an important topic for facilitating renewable energy sort of broadly. But could you tell us a little bit more about the unique considerations for developing transmission to support offshore wind?
4: So building the offshore wind transmission grid is a, a big priority for us. And we're doing a couple of things to make progress on this front. Number one, we're doing a lot of studies as we speak to better understand our menu of options on how we can build that offshore wind grid and link it to the onshore grid. In parallel to this, uh, we're not wanting to wait for the results of these studies, so we're uh, we're adopting a very practical approach in our upcoming solicitation and requiring offshore wind developers to make sure that their offshore wind sites are going to be meshed ready, meaning that in the future we would keep the option of connecting these different offshore wind projects into a regional meshed grid. So as we do this, we're including in the upcoming. Uh, New York 3 solicitation is that we're mandating the design of HVDC projects uh, in order to really uh, focus on constrained areas in New York, uh, especially in the New York Harbor, where we want to get as many cable as we can with the minimum amount of disturbance possible to the area. So this is why we're mandating the use of HVDC designs to ensure that that is the case. To give you like a short answer when it comes to transmission, it's all about planning and really being very thoughtful and responsible in how we what our next steps are and practical also to make progress as we wait for the results of, of all these studies that are ongoing as we speak.
2: That's really interesting. I can understand the benefit of trying to minimize the number of cables in the right away. way. Talk to me a little bit about the benefits of that meshed design that you've talked about.
4: Yeah. A lot of our studies are coming back saying that you know connecting substations offshore might be cheaper and more cost-effective than connecting these substations onshore. But again, at this point of our analysis, we're just keeping the options open to allow this to happen later on and not miss the boat today without committing to a final answer.
2: So as we think about that forward kind of thinking and design. NYSERDA is also guiding the development of its second-generation master plan, thinking about this new frontier in offshore wind. What are some of the issues that you're thinking about for this plan that either build on topics from the first plan or that weren't addressed in the first plan?
4: The first version of the master plan happened about seven years ago, and that was really you know the bedrock of what we're seeing today of, you know when Boeing has auctioned off the, you know, the New York bight lease areas. And as we look forward, and when you you go back to our Climate Act goal of getting to a a zero emission electric grid by 2040, and a lot of the analysis coming out of the Climate Action Council uh, indicate that we may need up to 20 gigawatts of offshore wind eventually to help New York achieve its goals. So what we're doing is we're kicking off uh, later this year, our Master Plan 2.0. So really, it's a holistic view of you know, what would it take to go deeper offshore and really set the the basics and the boundaries and the constraints for what eventually would be, you know, future Boeing lease auctions to enable going beyond our nine gigawatt goal today. The goal of the Master Plan 2.0 is really for us to better understand what should come next for the offshore wind industry in New York and anything we do Would be in collaboration with BOEM and any data that we would collect would be shared with BOEM to help them as they also try to progress the industry on their end.
2: So I heard you talk about sort of transmission and technological innovations to support going farther from shore. What about opportunities to marry offshore wind with other technologies like hydrogen or batteries? Is that something New York is thinking about?
4: We're gonna need a lot of different technologies and a lot of different pathways to to reach the climate ad goals. Energy storage, green hydrogen, and many others are going to be different pieces of the climate puzzle. So in our upcoming solicitation, we are signaling to the market and signaling to developers that uh, you know, we would welcome projects that do include some of these, you know, other technologies to be paired up with these offshore wind projects for sure. And, and it would be taken into consideration as we evaluate all the different bids and all different proposals. that we One additional initiative I want to highlight on the R&D front specifically to offshore wind. Uh, NYSERDA helped create an organization a few years ago called the National Offshore Wind R&D Consortium, which today includes many different states, many different private sector entities and organizations. And the purpose of of that platform is to advance R&D and innovation specifically uh, when it relates to offshore wind. And it's been a, a beautiful partnership also with the federal government, which also has been funding some of these projects coming out of the consortium. So, you know, NYSERDA is a proud founding member of that platform. And the fact that it has scaled beyond New York and beyond NYSERDA, I think, speaks volumes on our ambition and you know, our belief that, you know, we can't build a, a flourishing offshore wind industry without a deep partnership on a national level and with various stakeholders.
2: So I'd like to give you the final word. Is there anything else you think we should keep in mind as we think about the rapid growth of the offshore wind industry in New York and beyond?
4: I would just say, you know, all eyes are on New York 3, our upcoming offshore wind station in New York uh, that should be hitting the street shortly. We are here at Nestert are really excited for what's to come and can't wait to see, you know, how the industry evolves.
2: Thank you so much for joining us George we really appreciate your insights and we look forward to that solicitation and all that is to come for offshore wind in New York and Massachusetts and North Carolina and across the country.
1: Thanks to Jennifer Bruce and George for joining us today to talk about the key role that their states are playing in offshore wind developments in the United States. And thanks to Morgan for leading such an interesting conversation. You can find more episodes of Energy 360 at CSIS.org or wherever you listen to podcasts. As always, follow us on Twitter for updates at CSIS Energy. And thanks for listening.